I think we should leave it in. All right. Um, yes, Melbourne, Florida, <laughs> um, which uh, Melbourne, Australia might be uh, more of a tech hub than, than Melbourne, Florida. <laughs> Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome back to episode 30 of Acquired the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today's episode, we're covering two acquisitions that we believe go together nicely. Apple's acquisition of PA Semi and Authentech. We think it's a really nice way to mark the 10th anniversary of the iPhone, just a few weeks ago. These acquisitions led Apple's A-series chips inside the phone and the Touch ID sensor, which uh, which have a nice confluence where they, they work together well. Indeed. David, how are you doing today? <laughs> I am doing good. I am in cold but sunny Boston today. Hey, I'm in cold but uh, cloudy Seattle. It's kind of crazy that this is episode 30. I feel like we need like a like a birthday party for Acquired or something. We're getting old. I know. I know. Well, I'm marking it by being highly, highly caffeinated. And uh, for listeners, most episodes we record uh, in the evenings. And uh, and today um, I'm recording from home. David's recording from the road and uh, sipping coffee. Morning show. Yeah. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. 
So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. All right. Should we dive into it with the history and facts? I think so. I just want to throw in a a quick note before we dive in. Um, We want to say if you've been a listener of the show for a long time or if you're new to the show and uh, and like the episode, we would love a review on iTunes. Uh, We'd really appreciate sharing with your friends on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, emailing out to your company, whatever, uh, whatever you feel is appropriate. It's how we grow the show and it's how we get new listeners. And uh, also wanted to let everyone know we have a Slack channel. We talked about it a lot at uh, earlier episodes in the show, but haven't mentioned it in a while. There's uh, over 400 of us in the acquired community hanging out and talking about deals that happen in, in real time that are, are, are too recent to cover on the show. Um, talking about past episodes, sharing tips, posting jobs, all sorts of things. So uh, join us. Uh, if you go to acquire.fm, you can join the Slack there. Yeah, awesome. Look forward to seeing many of you in there. All right, let's dive in. So I'm going to start with PA Semi, um, which was funny when we were chatting about uh, uh, preparing for the show. Ben was like, oh, yeah, weren't they like based in Israel or something? I was like, I don't think so. And then I looked it up, and it turns out <laughs> that PA Semi uh, it was founded in 2003, and it was originally called Palo Alto Semiconductor. Um, but then, like, right after they were founded, they moved to Santa Clara. So <laughs> uh. so rather than changing the name, they just decided to go by PA Semi because they were no longer in Palo Alto, but right down the street. So the founder of P, uh, the original Palo Alto Semiconductor was actually kind of a celebrity in the chip uh, design industry called Dan Dobberful. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But he uh, he had been a lead chip designer uh, way back in the 70s and 80s for DEC um, and had become kind of a celebrity in the field. He actually wrote a leading textbook um, that, uh, that talked about chip design that was used at colleges all across the country. Um, and he worked on first on the DEC Alpha chip while he was there in the 70s and 80s. Um, and then he got involved in the ARM world and built decks, um, built the team actually in, moved to California and built the team in uh, California for deck that made the strong ARM processors, which were sort of higher powered versions of uh, processors based on the ARM chipset. And they tried to commercialize it and thought maybe, you know, sort of mobile devices might be an application for this. This was in the mid-90s. Couldn't make it work. They end up selling the whole division to Intel. Dan goes with it to Intel. Um, and then that becomes the X-scale chip at Intel, which would power a lot of the Blackberries that RIM was putting out in, oh, the, wow. uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Do you think we should take a minute just to, uh, uh, for less, you know, this is an extremely technical episode, um, for, uh, for folks not in the semiconductor world and, and, uh, <laughs> which includes not, Ben and me <laughs> and yeah, yeah, right. That's a, that's a great thing to start off with. Um, should we sort of explain the, the, the difference between ARM and x86 and at, at least at a high level? And yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, Why don't, yeah. Let, let's do that at a high level. Why don't you go ahead and, and also good disclaimer here that you know ben ben and i are sort of uh playing experts on tv here about the semiconductor industry but i'm sure we're gonna miss a lot of stuff so listeners if you know about semis jump in the slack or email us and tell us what we got wrong and um we'll we'll correct ourselves on a following show 
Yeah. So without getting too into the details, um, typically computers, as we know them, desktop computers, laptops, and and servers use x86 x86 architecture from Intel. And uh, there were efforts made, kind of starting um, or, or or at least most popularized by ARM ARM um, to do a different chip architecture that with a different instruction set of of assembly language um, that was more restricted, but a lot lower power. And Intel has had uh, uh, attempts over the years to come up with lower power chips. Um, the Atom processor is a great example of this. But the the reason why ARM chips in our iPhones, iPads, and many other things have, have come to be um, extremely popular in the last few years is because as we move to mobile devices, we have uh, stricter power requirements when we cannot plug things into the wall. Yeah, and we'll get into this in a minute um, when we actually get into PI, PA Semi. But that's exactly what Dan became known for, Dan Doberful, um, as a, sort of an expert on pushing the limits of this power-to-performance trade-off in chip design. Um, but, uh, but so this first uh, strong arm, you know, is kind of too early for the market in this. And so he leaves Intel in the late 90s and actually founds another company before starting PA Semi, and that's a company called Cybyte. And Cybyte... Um, is focused on making chips for, this is sort of like, you know, the run-up of the internet bubble, making chips for routers and networking gear, because everybody's, you know, these are like the 3Com days, and everybody's obsessed with the build-out of internet infrastructure. So the big market for chips is actually in, you know, Cisco 3Com routers. Um, And Cybyte is sort of like, hits the timing exactly right for the market, ends up getting acquired by Broadcom, the big chip uh, company, uh, public chip company, uh, before they even released their product for over $2 billion in late 2000. Wow. Um, talk about being in the right place at the right time. And this is great. This is where Dan's textbook, <laughs> it turns out, helps in this acquisition because the CEO of Broadcom uh, gave a quote to the Wall Street Journal about the acquisition. It said, you know, he first came across... Mr. Dauberful in college when he studied the engineer's textbook on processor design. And, uh, and he wow. quotes and he says, Cybite has the best engineering team he's ever seen. Um, so there you go, write a textbook, get acquired for $2 billion. It's that <laughs> simple. So Dan stays at, uh, at Broadcom after the acquisition for a couple of years, but late 2003, he sort of sees mobile coming. He's ready to leave and try the low power, uh, start a company to do low power chips again. And he starts Palo Alto Semiconductor. Um, and they end up raising money um, right out of the gate and then through a couple rounds from Bessemer, Venrock, Highland. Um, and then later on, Texas Instruments actually invests a lot of money in the company. Um, and they're working on these sort of like very low power but combined with high performance chips. Um, but they're initially using the power um, instruction set architecture, which is... Uh, as Ben was mentioning, x86 and ARM, that's a third instruction set um, that folks might remember was initially used by Max um, before right. Steve the Jobs made the famous announcement that Macs were going to switch to Intel. Yeah, which, which you know, this all happened at sort of a, an interesting confluence of time where um, that was announced, I believe, in 2005 on stage at Macworld. The first Macs emerged in 2006, and then in 2007, they were fully moved over to Intel. Yeah, and, so you know, it was WWDC 2005 um, when Steve announces that 
the Mac had had this secret life uh, for the last 10 years. And this was actually coming out of the next acquisition um, that they, uh, the Mac operating system in secret had been able to run on Intel chips so that Apple would be able to switch over to Intel at any point if it felt it needed to for strategic and, reasons. And this, like, I got it's such a good dramatic Jobsian reveal. The fact that the last two versions, or at least one version of Mac OS X, had actually shipped with these universal binaries to to or the ability to run universal binaries on um, x86 architecture or the the power pc architecture and he pulled up you know images of the cds that are in people's homes on their computers and said you actually have this right now we've just disabled yeah. it yeah super cool such a steve jobs moment and like who else <laughs> yeah. but steve jobs i mean like ben and i geek out about all this history but i bet a lot of listeners are like you know, instruction set, like chip architecture, like this is not why I buy products. But, um, right, right. you know, when Steve made this announcement, this was like national news. Everybody was floored. Like who else but Steve Jobs could make switching chipset architectures into such a, a huge announcement? Well, and yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, very similar to the, the time when um, Bill Gates came uh, on that gigantic screen to WWDC and, uh, and addressed the group. Um, this was, uh, marking the enemy, like Apple embracing the enemy. Uh, they were, they had demonized Intel for so long and, uh, you know, grouped them into the, the IBM Microsoft group of, of evil companies that did not represent the interests of, of Mac users and the creative professional in the future. And here they were basically signing a truce on stage. Yeah. Uh, and this is directly related to the history of PA Semi uh, and, and their interactions with Apple because PA Semi, it turns out, had actually been working with Apple for several months up before this announcement and they had no idea it was coming. So when, when Dan and the company, you know, they were targeting you know, the embedded market and low power devices and mobile, they weren't actually thinking about smartphones because smartphones didn't really exist yet. They were thinking about ultra portable laptops. Um, mm. And so they had been working with Apple behind the scenes, uh, trying to bid for the contract to be the main provider of chips for the next set of MacBooks. Um, and they, they were convinced that they were going to win this contract from Apple and this was going to be huge and make the company. And, uh, and then WWDC rolls around Steve goes oh, on stage, God. makes this announcement. They're switching to Intel, and you know apparently Dan and the company were just like floored and completely f furious because this blew up the deal that they were working on that they thought was going to make the company. Wow. Um, so at, at at this point, this was 2005. Uh, Apple doesn't end up acquiring PSMI until 2008. Um, so yeah, a lot after of the launch of the iPhone. After the launch of the iPhone, right? You know, and the iPhone isn't going to debut for another two years. Um, and a lot of people think, you know, PA Semi is kind of left for dead at this point. You know, they have this incredible technology. It really was kind of a 10x. You know, people, we talk in VC and startups about, you know, you need a 10x better product to, to, you know, really be disruptive in the market. And their technology really was 10x better on power savings, um, but they were targeting the power PC uh, architecture. And, and that, that market just, you know, wasn't there, uh, especially with Apple switching over to Intel. Um, so PA Semi kind of, kind of bumps along. They eventually do release a processor, um, 64 bit dual core processor, 
huge power savings comes out in 2007 but you know there's not a big market for it that was the only only product they ever released right was the, the only one. yep that's the only I, I believe that is the only chip they ever released into the market um and then uh, but then at the same time the iphone comes out and the iphone initially uh folks might remember the first few versions of the iphone uh the, the original one the 3g and the 3gs all used um samsung processors and so <laughs> for a right. whole bunch of reasons apple is really interested in moving away from samsung processors and then in 2008 they acquire um they end up acquiring psmi uh, for 278 million in cash which is you know a decent outcome but the company raised 86 million dollars we, we don't know at what valuation but you right. know it must have been at least, you know, somewhere in the you know mid hundred millions. So not a huge outcome for investors and certainly relative to Dan's previous company, Cybite, you know, that's an order of magnitude smaller. Um, yeah. And, but- and it's, it's, it's worth uh, taking a quick pause here that, that 86 million uh, figure, y- you might think, you know, how could a company of 150 employees that was around for four years that needs to design and manufacture microprocessors and systems on a chip, like how, how or I guess just microprocessors, how could they, you know, only raise that much money? And it's because they, they were a, uh, a fabulous um, chip company. They were not, uh, right. you know, actually making these things themselves. They were... Um, the, what most people do is is they use a chip fab in in China or somewhere else with um, you know less expensive labor costs to uh, to manufacture the chips and they themselves are are designing the architecture and laying out the board and actually that uh, there was a lot of speculation when when Texas Instruments uh, invested in PASMI that um, their fabrication plants because TI has their own uh, chip fabs would be used to manufacture those those uh, those processors. So that was yeah. kind of a big strategic investor for them. Yeah, totally. And um, what's funny, though, when the acquisition happened, and uh, I was going back and rereading some of the articles um, about the deal when it came out, you know, I don't know, Ben, you saw the same things. Most people didn't really realize that this was about the iPhone, because um, this is 2008, and um, I believe the 3G had come out at this point, not yet the 3GS, but the iPhone was still pretty small. Like it was very, um, you know, it had a lot of buzz, but people didn't really realize yet that, you know, the iPhone was about to become Apple and that the Mac was going to take right. a, take a back seat. And, you know, people were still thinking about the iPod as being, you know, it was, it was still, I believe at that point, I'm not sure, but it, roughly the same size or bigger than the than the iPhone, um, you know, and uh, so all the all the press at the time of the deal was con- they were really confused about like why is Apple finally buying PA Semi? They switched to <laughs> Intel. Are they thinking about you know a new ultra portable that they're bringing out that they might bring back the power PC architecture? I mean, it is interesting. I, I'd love to get your take on this. Like, what? Uh, I mean, they were they were clearly brilliant people there that were specifically brilliant at chip design. But you know, they they weren't working on ARM processors. So. No, uh, but what did happen is, um, uh, you know, right away they basically stopped all the work that PASMI was doing on. Um, their own stuff and they put the team on Apple already had an existing project working on an arm design working on what would become the a4 uh, mm. the first Apple chip that they that they were um, that they would put out which actually launched with the iPad when the original iPad was introduced this was a big selling point um, 
and uh, and the whole team from PASMI got put on got put on that. And of course, Dan is you know sort of this legend in in you know low p- power performance trade off. So right, um, right, they it's really like accelerated done... the work. Yeah, good point. So yeah, 2010, Steve Jobs introduces the original iPad, and it was really fun doing the research going back watching that keynote and watching the product introduction video, Scott Forrestal takes up like half of the video of the product <laughs> video, which is pretty funny. Yeah. Poor, poor guy. <laughs> and all the, uh, all the apps, like so much, you know, skeuomorphic design. <laughs> it was, it was actually sort of painful to look at. Yeah. Yeah. I bet it's, it's weird how it's so like, you know, the lickability was a thing at the time in UI and you wanted yeah. to like touch it and fe- and now it's just like, that's it, it, a whole bunch of wasted rendering. Yeah. Total sidebar too. I kept thinking, you know, this was 2010 when it launched and I'm looking at this, you know, we're here in January, 2017, which, you know, we talk about a theme on this show that, um, things move really fast in tech and waves keep coming successively faster, but like that was not that long ago. And both the software and the hardware of the original iPad, you know, Steve and Johnny Ive and everybody is touting it as so incredibly advanced at the product launch and now it looks like a dinosaur right and it was at the time i mean i i uh i had the first ipad and i i remember thinking this thing is like a marvel but knowing even then that this one would be known as the heavy one like it was you really couldn't hold it out in front of you with one hand for any meaningful amount of time without your arm getting tired yeah and uh you know the the bezel around the edge i had it too i bought it on launch day and uh lined up for it Um, (laughs) it was uh it was great i used it so much but now you know now i've got my iphone 7 plus i don't have an ipad anymore and it's like ways you know (laughs) has almost as much screen real estate maybe not almost a, a, a significant enough screen real estate and weighs almost nothing and battery lasts forever. Uh, amazing how technology moves. Truly. Um, so that's the story of PA Semi. The authentic story uh, we'll run through a little more quickly because it's uh, less interesting um, in in whole, but, but it's sort of new. We haven't seen something quite like this yet on Acquired, I think. Authentic um, was based in the technology hotbed of Melbourne, Florida, <laughs> which I did not know until I started doing the research here. But there is, um, I, I believe, the largest employer <laughs> in Melbourne is a company called Harris, um, which is a giant uh, defense contractor. And it was actually named by Wired, the things you learn during re- doing research for this show, named by Wired Magazine as the number two threat to internet privacy in America in 2015, <laughs> right behind wow. the NSA. Um, wow. they make, uh, the, the main product I believe that Harris makes now are, um, Oh, what are they called? Uh, I want to say stingray. That could be wrong. They're basically like fake cell phone towers that, um, your phone will try to connect to. And then through that, you know, they, the, the government or whoever there, uh, owns these things then can track phones huge privacy uh, controversy around this company creepy Um, but they uh they had in the 90s they had a big semiconductor uh division and um they kind of went through must have gone through a strategic review and decided that they were gonna uh change that part of their corporate structure um they end up spinning off the entire semiconductor division in 1999 um, but right before they do that in 1998, they spin off this company called Authentech. And Authentech was going to work on um, specific, you know, 
security and um, authentication uh, technology for embedded devices. And this was back in 1998, so you know, way before smartphones are even um, a concept. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, there's actually this really great article that we'll link to in the show notes of uh, the, the CEO of Authentic um, uh, is uh, after the Apple acquisition, he goes back and he gives a talk at, um, I believe, NC State, where he was, uh, which was his alma mater. And he brings one of the prototypes of Authentic's first product, which is basically the Touch ID sensor that's in the iPhone. Um, but it's like <laughs> many times larger than an iPhone itself. Now it's this huge box with like a, a separate box attached by a big ribbon <laughs> cable that you stick your hand on and it like worked, you know, 5% of the time. <laughs> to, to draw an analogy, uh, it sure reminds me of playing with an Oculus in 2016, 2017. Yeah, yeah right? definitely. Um, so Authentic works on, on this technology for a long time. They actually go public themselves in 2007. We keep refining the technology and selling it to any customers along the way and applications that would find it interesting. And then finally, um, in 2011, uh, they do sort of a, a collaboration with NXP Semiconductors and a, um, a software firm called Device Fidelity that was working on mobile payment software and they sort of like create this suite of um, both hardware and software that's uh, aimed to enable fingerprint authentication for NFC mobile payments for the Android ecosystem. Um, so this was kind of the age of when everybody was all excited about NFC. Yeah. And, um, this was a big selling point for a lot of Android phone manufacturers. Um, and so this consortium actually wins contracts with Motorola, Nokia, and then finally with Samsung. And this was going to be a huge deal. Samsung was going to put this system in their coming flagship phones. Uh, this was, it was July 2012, beginning of July 2012, when Samsung announces um, this, that they're going to integrate this technology in their new set of phones. And so then almost immediately thereafter, late July 2012, on July 27th, Apple acquires the company. <laughs> hey. hey! Which was a big coup. I mean, think we talked about on the Android episode and a bunch of episodes in the past. You know, this was like the height of the smartphone wars. Samsung had emerged with copying Apple, you know, feature for feature. And this was going to be a big innovative thing that Samsung was going to launch. Apple swoops in and acquires the company. And it's interesting that uh, I remember hearing about this when it happened and looking it up and going, oh, fingerprint recognition and kind of being like, well, maybe they'll do that on Macs at some point or the iPhone at some point. But the thing that totally got lost in that story was the the payment stuff. Yeah. And it's funny that, that you know, with, with Apple Pay becoming one of the major uh, advantages to having Touch ID, um, that, you know, that, that had its roots all the way back in, in Authentic. Yeah. Uh, in, you know, more than a decade before. Um, and, and it's pretty amazing. I mean, the, the, that time and that amount of R and D over the decade plus that had gone into this product, um, I think really did make it, uh, make it differentiated in the market because, you know, Apple acquires the company end of July, 2012, and it's just almost exactly a year later when, um, well, they announced they were acquiring the company end of July, 2012, the acquisition probably doesn't close for another couple months at least because Authentic's a public company at this point. Um, right. And it was beginning of September 2013, the very next year, when the iPhone 5S comes out that has the Touch ID sensor. So the turnaround time on this is like 
basically immediate in the in terms of product development uh, when you're integrating you know an acquisition. So this was um, this was uh, an incredibly speedy job by the Apple team, and I think yeah. it speaks to the maturity of the product. Totally, totally. And I've got a couple of interesting tidbits here. Um, I went to uh, the Wayback Machine, uh, archive.org, and, and looked up Authentic from uh, from February 22nd, 2011. And you look at their website, and it really is the whole suite of very un-Apple-like authentication methods from, from that era. There's like a little banner, and we can include this link in the show notes. There's a little banner there that says, does your PC have a touch sensor? And it's got uh, it's got that little like swipe down thing that's on a lot of the a lot of the PCs to log in. There's an ad for the HP Simple Pass 2011 powered by Authentic's identity management system. There's oh, a, man. there's this like all, these laptops <laughs> so and phones much, with you know gar- garbage product names. Yeah, so totally. Totally. And you look at this and you you the kind of high level here that the high level point I'm trying to make is this company looks nothing like a, an Apple company. It's kind of the antithesis of, of uh, from a, a go-to-market and product perspective of the way that Apple um, reaches customers. I mean, they have like eight other companies' logos all over this website. And what the, their little, their quote, let me pull up the Steve Dowling quote, um, you know, that they always give when they acquire a, a company is Apple buys smaller technology companies from time to time. And we generally do not comment on our purposes and plans. And that's truly how they look at it, that, you know, we're buying a technology here. Like we could not care about the way that they're going to market right now, the way that their products look or are defined. It's it's literally like, look at all this R&D these people have done. We're buying a technology company. Yeah. Well, I think this is a perfect transition unless you have anything else um to go into acquisition category uh i I do have a couple a couple little things okay go ahead one uh on this show as as listeners know we love when public companies acquire other public companies because we get to learn things um apple paid a 58 percent premium for authentic over their their existing uh, or their current trading market cap and uh, a lot of this was powered because uh, Samsung was uh, one of its biggest customers and believed to be also making a play. So uh, I don't believe mm. there was a, a counter offer, but Apple did go in high um, to make sure that they uh, they got the deal. And what we've seen in other um, episodes where we've reviewed public companies buying other public companies, you see 18 to 30% as the premium that uh, uh, existing um, management teams and boards are willing to accept uh, as a, as a uh, acquisition bid. And this is, um, you know, dramatically higher than, than uh, other ones we've seen. And it did come with a, a termination fee of 20 million in, cl- in case there were antitrust issues and the deal didn't close. Yeah. It's interesting though. I mean, the sticker price was 356 million, which I don't think we mentioned earlier. We should have. Um, so yeah, that was uh, at that almost sixty percent premium, um, three hundred fifty-six million. When you take a step back, that's a large premium, but like that's not that much money. And it's right. interesting that Samsung either didn't counter offer, or if they did, you know, not buy enough to win the deal. Um, for you know, when you're talking about not that much money relative to the amount of uh, well, we'll get into this uh, in grading, um, grading the show, but the amount of money in the smartphone, you know, hardware right. sales for a, a really differentiating feature like this. Um, you know, interesting move by Samsung not to to let this one go, especially they just announced earlier that month this big deal that they were going to include this as a flagship feature in 
future smartphones. Yep. Yep. And then before we move on to it's worth noting, you know, we're, we're covering two very big landmark deals here, but Apple spent over half a billion dollars after, uh, um, after acquiring PA Semi on, on other, um, you know, semiconductor and, and yep. processor related companies, uh, in, Intrinsity, Passive Semiconductors, Prime Sense, they really, uh, you know, the, it wasn't just that they developed it wholly in-house then after acquiring PA Semi. Yep. Yep. Uh, definitely. And, they may, did they acquire other authentication uh, companies along the way too? Um, I'm actually not sure. I think smaller ones, but th- this was definitely the, um, you know, you look at an iPhone, you identify it has a screen and a button with a fingerprint sensor, and this was the fingerprint sensor. Yep, and this was the main tech behind it. Yeah. Um, all right, acquisition category? Let's do it. Let's do it. So, yeah, Ben, what you were saying earlier, uh, what I think is interesting about these two deals is they are... Um, both of them very directly related to flagship features of iOS devices, both iPhones and iPads, um, that would become differentiators in the market. So they, they make sense to do together uh, as one episode in that sense, but um, I, I actually think they are two different categories based on the history of how the integration happened. You know, with PA Semi, clearly like Apple was already working on their own ARM chips that they would that they would release um, with the iPad, uh, but this was about getting sort of the best talent in the world to come and join the team and, and execute with them. Um, and uh, and then on the authentic side, so I, so I think the PA Semi acquisition was very much a, a people acquisition, um, very technically minded people. That's only 1.8 million per employee. I mean, it's actually not like insane if you think that um, if, if, if you are Apple making the bet that this is going to have tremendous business impact and there's not other people of this caliber. Yeah. That are all I mean, this together. is literally the guy that wrote the book on, <laughs> yeah. on, uh, low power, high, uh, high performance chip design. Yeah. Um, but then authentic is interesting. You know, this is a company, uh, that was a spin out from a defense contractor based in, uh, in Melbourne, Florida. And, uh, uh, and, and I believe most of the people from the authentic, acquisition are, are no longer at Apple or if, or if they are perhaps a move to Cupertino, um, you know, that was very clearly a specific technology in the fingerprint sensor that became touch ID that they acquired. So they both accomplished the same goal, but it's interesting. I think they, I think they took very different routes in each acquisition. Yep. David, I couldn't agree with you more. That's exactly what I had in my notes. And, uh, I want to just make a, uh, uh, drill in a little bit further on, one point that you made that of why it makes sense to do these uh, these two companies together, um, the ability of Apple to integrate these two products creates an advantage uh, that other manufacturers don't have. So yeah. the um, A series chip have uh, something that App- Apple markets as the secure enclave, which means that there is it, it has the ability to do um, um, processing specifically of uh, of uh, security applications in an isolated way from other things going on on the uh, on the chip itself. Yeah, so, and importantly, locally on the device. Yes. Yes. So um, not only so when you do your touch ID fingerprint, not only does it not round trip to the server, it doesn't get to memory and it doesn't even get to the, the, the main CPU. So you're or I guess the main core of, uh, of the processor. So the touch ID sensor operates, you know, fully in an isolated way. And, uh, and, and, you know, 
we've seen um we've seen that really pay dividends for for apple going toe-to-toe with you know the the fbi yeah and the san bernardino shooting case yeah and i i think you know it, it when apple plants a flag in the ground and says we're serious about device security and that um you know, I, I don't want to get into the morality and politics of that because I think there's a different discussion. But they, they really are able to say that, you know, uh, all the security vectors that um, that people would normally do to get into devices by, you know, rooting it or having direct uh, direct hardware access. Like you just those fingerprints and, you know, the the, um, you know, ghosts in, in memory of those fingerprints don't even ever exist to, to be able to go and get them later. So I yeah, think that yeah. the the integration of these two technologies is is something that, uh, as as Tim Cook would put it, quote unquote, only Apple uh, would would be able to take this approach. Yeah, and this is well, this is definitely going to be one of my tech themes, which we can we can talk a little bit more about later. But I'm thinking back to the next episode and Steve Jobs, you know, quoting that if, you, if you're really serious about software, you need to make your own hardware. And, which, uh, which I think he ripped off from Alan Kay, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and and he he attributed the quote to Alan Kay when he said it, but um, uh, but the you know classic case of that here, and and it really is. I mean, no, um, this is a key differentiator of the iOS ecosystem and devices now for a lot of people, especially in the you know in the um, post privacy, <laughs> post truth world we live in. Oh man, um, that uh, uh, that that no other you know the Android ecosystem can't make these claims. Um, no other device manufacturer can. Um, also, I find it <laughs> incredibly ironic that Authentic is a spin-out from a major defense contractor ranked by Wired Magazine <laughs> as right behind the NSA in terms of you know decreasing privacy on the internet and then becomes a cornerstone of Apple's privacy strategy. Yeah. <laughs> the irony is thick. It is thick. <laughs> We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. 
And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. All right, should we move on to uh, what would have happened otherwise? Yeah, and I think uh, one thing that I want to raise now but not talk about until we're grading it is um, I talked about this, you know, this Tim Cook marketing speak, only Apple and the advantage that, um, you know, these two technologies combined together under the same roof and the same engineering team give. I think it's interesting for us later to examine what was the actual business impact of that. So, yeah. Um, what would have happened otherwise? You know, I have two sort of notes here. One is who else could Apple have bought or how else could Apple have have gotten here? Um and I, I look, let's, let's look at PSMI first. It was basically a build or buy decision for, for Apple. Um, and clearly they were working on building anyway, but this just rapidly, rapidly accelerated their pace. And then with, um, with Authentic, um, you know, it truly was competitive. Like Samsung was very clearly skating in the, in the same place and they were already, uh, Authentic was already sort of in the, uh, Android ecosystem. So it wouldn't, wouldn't have surprised me if somebody, uh, in the Android ecosystem, um, that was that was budding and, and becoming uh, the at this point I think it was kind of overtaking Apple and becoming the more popular not the more, more profitable but the more popular uh, um, operating system and uh, I, I could see that one going to to a different company and then the question for Apple is uh, you know how how would they have been able to build out the feature that they wanted to build uh, without bringing Authentic in house? Yep, I'm spot on, um, and I think I think this whole that discussion, especially Samsung's um, failure to uh, either submit a competitive bid for Authentic or um, or a compelling one, um, I think just really reflects the difference in um, perspective about uh, about products at at Apple versus many of their competitors in the ecosystem. You know, Apple really. Um, say what you will about them. And, and I think they, uh, as we move further into the maturity, the maturing phase of mobile devices and people start to look to the next generation, there are a lot of, uh, legitimate questions about Apple's future right now, but they really think about products from a whole product sense, um, and from a user centric and, and compellingness to a user perspective. Um, and they realize that, uh, they had a vision of, of what this integrated product that we were just talking about, you know, about not only the convenience of unlocking your phone um, and paying with your fingerprint for mobile devices, but the security and the necessity of doing that with in-house technologies um, versus their competitors in the Android ecosystem. And, you know, I, I, I really don't think any of them can make the same claims around um, around both security and privacy uh, and also seamlessness uh, that uh, that Apple can in this arena. Nope, totally agreed. There's one other thing I just I don't think it's insightful. I just ben. find it hilarious that uh, in in 2008, CNET wrote this article that uh, uh, was um, pointing out that Apple made a choice here with ARM with the iPhone, and yet Intel, their you know their partner for all their Mac computers, had a, a low power chip they were developing called the Atom. And uh, they write this whole article analyzing why it's it seems like Apple's not going to go with the the Atom chip. But the the title of the article is "Apple unlikely to get up an Atom." 
<laughs> and I just read it and it was like, boo. <laughs> uh, that's like a dad yeah. joke if I ever heard one. All right. Tech themes? Tech themes. You know, I don't know if this was apparent to them at the time, but when you look at the proliferation of uh, a- applications that Apple has been able to go into with first-party hardware that... Um, you know, they never would have dreamed of 10 years ago. It's incredible. And it's all powered by the, the work that they did on the, the a series chips. So we look at the, the Apple watch, which has the, the S two chip, which is the system, they call it the system in a package. So not just the, you know, system on a chip, but they actually yep. package other, other sensors with it. Um, the ear pods have custom silicon, the, the W1 chip. The touch bar has the T1, which basically uh, is a, a um, forked version of watchOS that it runs um, and, and is a, a similar architecture. It's incredible that um, Apple's been able to so finely tune their products because they've been able to control the underlying chip and, and, uh, and surrounding pieces of that rather than buying it from a third party. And, yep. and Apple, we view as a vertically integrated company. Um, and they're really, you know, they're, they're modular in so many ways. They have tons of suppliers. They negotiate fiercely. They combine, you know, hundreds of other companies' products into their own um, and then, you know, put a, put a nice case on it. But for the things that they think can, can really differentiate them and really uh, provide a strategic advantage for the long term, um, they they bring it in house and and doing that with the silicon and vertically integrating the silicon and all their products really enabled all these new product categories that they're trying to go after today and and I don't think any of them will be as uh, as successful or profitable as the iPhone um, I, I think that was a unique moment in history but um, it, it it sure is allowing them to go go new places yeah th- this was my one of mine too that you know to, talked about you know sort of the this idea that, you know, if you care about software, you make your own hardware, the Alan Kay mm-hmm. concept. Um, but I think it's, uh, I wanted to talk about it in the lens of, um, there are very, very few technology companies that really take that to heart. And they tend to be, you know, the giant, most successful, enduring companies that do, you know, the Apple, um, you know, Google with what they're doing with, um, with with their data centers uh, and with uh, you know and, and then slightly you know one level up the stack with uh, TensorFlow and all the machine learning you know tools and, and technology they're creating um, Amazon certainly with Amazon Web Services um, and I think you know that balance if you really want to build an enormous and sustaining technology franchise you know and certainly Microsoft does this too. Um, uh, and, and Facebook is beginning to, um, you have to make that transition, but you can't do that as a startup, right? Like it would be a fool's <laughs> errand, you know, um, Sh- Xiaomi tried. Yeah. Well, right. And, uh, and, uh, they are, you know, at this moment in time, I think, I think struggling a little bit relative yeah. to expectations, Yeah. but you know, like Baidu does the same thing, Alibaba, but uh, you know, the question of when to make that transition in the life cycle of the company is a, an important strategic one, you know, certainly I, I don't think I would recommend, um, baby startups doing it, you know, as a startup, you want to embrace standing on the shoulders of giants, but at some point, if you really want to compete with the big boys, you kind of have to become a giant yourself. That's true. It's true. Another interesting, uh, data point on this. So according to Geekbench, and this is from a, a Verge article we can link to, um, called the iPhone seven, a 10 fusion processor and Intel's future. Um, 
the single core performance of Apple's latest generation of smartphone processors, the A10 Fusion, has basically caught up with Intel's laptop CPUs and actually wow. rivals the single core performance of the uh, of the the Mac Pro. I mean, I'll be at a few years old, but like the 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 single core performance of the chip in my phone is is rivaling um, Intel's laptop chips, and of course, uh, you know, there, there's all sorts of advantages to to um, being in a tower, you can put in GPUs and as much RAM as you want, and you know a lot, a lot more uh, complexity without having to worry about storage. But you know the market for those really high end that really that that high end power is shrinking, and the or the market for low power chips is is growing dramatically. Yeah, or it has grown dramatically. What I think, I mean, I've found since upgrading to the seven plus, I had the six plus. You know, not the S, the sort of two, two and a half year old, uh, model, um, at this point before upgrading, like I've noticed a dramatic difference in performance. Yeah. Yeah. If we really want to go tech trends and themes, how much does all this matter going forward? It's clearly been super important in the last decade, uh, to have, uh, um, all all this power on our, our phones, but are we going to shift back toward the the TikTok of of you know powerful on the client powerful on the server powerful on the client powerful on the server like in this world of of uh, cloud and machine learning and and re- relying on a lot of uh, remote infrastructure for our computing yeah um, is this going to be less of a competitive differentiator and you know how much does this world of ARM matter in the the land of machine learning and cloud yeah a hundred percent this actually two other tech themes I wanted to lump together and cover quickly the sort of, um, I don't think answering that question, but furthering the context for it, you know, one is sort of market timing and, and, and waves. And I think, you know, the PSMI, um, uh, history illustrates this so perfectly, right. You know, like, and we talk about on the show so often we covered in our 2016 review episode, you know, the key to startup and venture capital is, you know, targeting the big market at the right time and the right time of the wave. And, you know, Apple with the iPhone just got it so, you know, so right, probably the most right of any, you know, sort of combination of size and timing of waves in history with the, the smartphone market. Like technology had just gotten to the point and consumer willingness to adopt had just gotten to the point where it was possible, you know, the first processor in the first iPhone was like, a, I think it was 416 megahertz, I believe, from Samsung. And like, it was just barely enough to make <laughs> the thing work, you know, yep. but it was just barely enough. And, uh, and but but now as the pro- as the market has matured, and we've got, you know, a chip in our iPhones that literally is as powerful as a Mac Pro a couple of years ago. How much more power do we need? You know, we're we're at a mature point, uh, at least maturing point in the smartphone market. And then the the other theme I wanted to tie that to is just like both of these acquisitions are total Clayton Christensen sustaining innovations, not disruptive innovations. You know, they are sustaining this wave that Apple's on. But the, but as you pointed out with your question, the critical question for the tech industry, for us as investors, as startups, as people working in it right now is, what is the next wave? You know, um, because the this past wave that we've been riding of mobile and smartphones, while being the largest and most prolific in history, um, you know, it's mature now. 
it's cresting. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the title of that book and the phrase, uh, what got you here won't get you there st- starts to come to mind where y- we're going to get into grading here in a minute, but, um, you know, having their own, their own in-house silicon and, and to a lesser extent security features, um, gave Apple a lot of advantages to to keep their experience lead over Samsung and other Android manufacturers and to to really like um, be able to produce the the best quality most differentiated experience phones and I think you know that that was you know hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue that that we can attribute to that um, but looking around and as the dust starts to settle today and looking at what's next I'm not convinced that actually sets Apple up for the future in a way that matters in the next wave of experiences. Yep. Completely agree. Especially if the next wave of experiences are primarily machine learning driven data and data science driven and, 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 and most importantly, as a result of that service driven innovations, you know, not, hardware, not software, but service-driven innovations, um, you know, that is not in Apple's DNA. No, it's not. And and they, um, they I forget what they called it, Dif- uh, differential, pri- differential, what's the thing where they do the machine learning on the device for the photos that they ta- touted at WWDC? Oh, I don't remember. Differential I'll look it up. privacy? Yeah. Well, you do that, uh, listeners, um, Apple is taking the position that they can do a lot of this really advanced machine learning and cool applications that you're seeing from from Google and others that they can do it on the device and they can do it without, you know, sending your identifiable information into the cloud and and potentially compromising your security for, at a request in the future. And um they're publishing papers on it and they're actually they're uh using a lot of methods that were were published by Google engineers years ago. And I you know, it's it's interesting I fundamentally don't think that um, that the on-device way of doing this will win out in the long run relative to having all of your data in close proximity to each other that's not bandwidth constrained all in, you know, data centers. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, we're still in early, early innings of, you know, this wave. So, um, you know, we don't know, but I, I do tend to agree with you. I mean, to the extent that the uh, quality of machine learning and data science is driven by the volume and the quality of data that you have uh, siloing that data to just what the storage available on your local device and your own um, data generated from it versus, you know, a Google like approach where it's, you know, unfathomable amounts of data across the entire world interacting with your product uh, in real time, you know, uh, in all their data centers across the world, uh, you know, I think Google's going to win that. Um, so we'll I think see so too. Google, Amazon, Microsoft, like one of these, yep. not, not Apple. I don't think, I don't think so. Um, yeah. D- differential privacy is, is the name of that feature. Mm, got it. Yeah. You want to move on to grading it? I think so. So for me, you know, this really is kind of a, uh, as we were talking about, sort of a tale of a tale of two cities, a tale of two acquisitions, you know, was the best of best of acquisitions was the worst of acquisitions for for Apple, you know, on these two companies, they spent a combined $634 million. And then as Ben pointed out, they acquired many other smaller companies in the same 
uh, also in, in silicon design. So let's call it another half a billion-ish. Let's say they spent around a billion dollars on this, um, uh, on, on these, these teams uh, and technologies. From the time they launched the A4 in the iPhone, which was with the iPhone 4, um, and, and let's just only look at iPhone and look at the generations from iPhone 4 to iPhone 6. Um, so not the 6S, not the most recent 7. You know, it's roughly four-ish years. Um, and let's just say as a proxy that that's sort of the competitive advantage period granted by these acquisitions and the speed with which they were able to deploy these differentiating features versus the market. Those, just those generations of iPhones sold about 720 million-ish units <laughs> at roughly a $600 average selling price. It's a little higher. So that's over $400 billion of revenue. And let's assume about a 40-ish percent gross margin. It's actually a little higher. You know, you're at sort of $170 billion of gross margin generated by units during that time. And then so, you know, trying to do the math here, like, okay, how much of that is attributable? How much of those sales are attributable to these differentiated features? I don't know, 10%, 5%, let's take 5%. That's still almost $10 billion in incremental sort of contribution margin from these <laughs> acquisitions. So versus a billion dollars spent 10 to one, you know, that's great. Um, at the same time, these are, as we just talked about, sustaining acquisitions. You know, I compare them versus, you know, our, our benchmarks of what great acquisitions are in Instagram and in Next. Um, you know, those are, those are acquisitions that, generated entirely new, you know, business lines and categories for their companies, you know, in next case, you know, over a trillion dollars worth of, um, you know, worth of business. I don't think those fall into that category. Um, so for me, I think I give, um, I think I give a B plus slash a minus with a leaning more towards the a minus side, because these were incredibly executed, sustaining innovation, you know, acquisitions, um, and had they fallen into competitors' hands, I think would have changed, uh, impacted the trajectory of, of, you know, Apple's profits versus the competition in this space. Man, David, that's, is, this is why I love having you as a co-host. <laughs> like, <so laughs> Thanks, but, because, I did, because you had done the same math and we're about to do the same thing and I just no, stole your thunder. <laughs> no, cause I didn't do the math and I had this like, I was going to arrive at an A minus conclusion through a much more hand wavy method, but like the, the actual analysis to come up with that, you know, 10 billion compared to 600 ish million, it's like a, you know, it's a 16, 17 X return and you, you know, using all sorts of, of assumptions and, and sort of generalities in that model. But I totally, this here's going to be my A minus. They made hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue. Um, some amount of that attributable to these acquisitions was tremendous for them getting here, but didn't set them up going forward. So I was going to discount my A to an A minus for um, not being convinced that it meaningfully differentiated them in the future. Yeah. Well, I think we probably both, you know, together we're both at the right combination of like database analysis and big picture gut feel here. And I think you're totally like, I just can't these were incredibly well executed acquisitions, but I just can't put them in the same league as Instagram and Nest. <laughs> Nest, <laughs> not Nest, Next. Yeah. Um, uh, we'll have to do Nest at some point. I just bought one. Uh, I actually really like it. Nice. But uh, 
anyway. Yeah, and, and you know, the counter-argument, I'm going to stick with my grade, but the counter-argument would be that let's say we move to a world where there's not all this uh, heavy compute going on in the phones, and we, um, rather than having a single device, we have this networked uh, confluence of sensors around us. So we have ear pods, and we have a watch, and we have um, a, a screen, but it may not have the uh, you know, the, all the innards of the iPhone in it. And maybe that screen just appears in our glasses or it appears wherever we're looking. Or, you know, there's all sorts of interesting um, sci-fi features about what the display could be like. But let's say we decouple all these things. Even though a lot of that intelligence is going to be done in the cloud, um, we still live in a world that's kind of, uh, that that's more bandwidth constrained than it is compute constrained or storage constrained. And I think that, as bandwidth continues to be the issue, that's going to be the um, the gating factor in, in how much we can push off of our bodies versus actually have um, with us at all times. And and Apple, um, you know, bringing all of this silicon uh, design and, and production in house, or at least designed in house, does allow them to to create the the best possible um, experience of of this several device ecosystem talking to each other as we've seen with the ear pods providing a meaningfully better experience than pairing most bluetooth headphones yep i completely agree and i think that you know the truth lies somewhere in the middle and the reality is um you know as we talked about we are still this is what makes you know our jobs uh fun and and technology as an industry fun like we're still early enough in the next wave or waves uh you know whatever they will be whether it's you know machine learning driven services or sensor and very intimately personal device driven technologies but we're still early enough to that that these stories haven't been written yet and and these waves come so fast in technology that you know both of us have been in this industry less than 10 years and we've already experienced you know <laughs> multiple waves it's what keeps it fun yep yep all right moving on to follow up yeah we got we got three things so uh, we covered in our, our first non-technical episode the merger of Alaska Airlines and uh, and Virgin, and or Virgin America. And uh, I, I sent David a picture recently of uh, a, I was flying back um, from vacation, had a, uh, a little insert in in my Alaska seat in front of me, and they really, really, really embraced um, messaging to all of their. Uh, their customers that that they're merging in the the seat back pocket. There's little information things. All the flight attendants were wearing these like really well designed um, shirts that blend the, the Virgin brand into the Alaska brand, and extremely informative uh, information on how all the um, all the point stuff gets gets combined. And so I think they're they're just rolling that out now to combine all of their uh, um, the loyalty programs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, I'm. Uh... As a uh, self-proclaimed, quote, West Coast <laughs> resident, uh, uh, Jenny and I, uh, uh, we hardly think of ourselves as living in one city and more just up and down the West Coast at this point. And uh, uh, I'm so excited. I think this is uh, uh, taking, you know, the great Seattle service that uh, that Alaska has and, and Virgin from, from SFO and LAX and and Oakland, super excited to merge these <laughs> point programs and and uh, keep getting incremental status tiers. Absolutely. Number two, Mark Lurie is starting to uh, make moves at at Walmart. They uh, just had a big reorg, created new positions, eliminated others. One thing that we talked about in the uh, Jet episode was if they're going to be serious about. Um, rebuilding their organization as a true internet company at Walmart. And if they're going to sort of 
be able to to move that uh, almost reverse acquired DNA of Jet and in kind of like infuse that in Walmart. And uh, we're we're starting to really see the first steps now. Yeah, um, news uh, just came out in a memo um, from Mark Laurie, basically reorging um, most of the e-commerce operations uh, at Walmart.com, and and unsurprisingly, it's mostly Jet folks who are taking over. And and I think this we talked about this on the Jet episode, but um, just even more firmly positions this as sort of a a very very expensive talent acquisition yep. um, that Walmart did. Yeah. And it's interesting how it's funny how like the price tag actually may make it command more respect internally. Like if they had bought it for one billion dollars, you could see yeah. like people inside being like, eh, we don't have to listen to this guy. But with like a more expensive price tag comes a, a more necessary adherence. Man, <laughs> that is some uh, that is some dysfunctional uh, organizational <laughs> behavior as they would put it in business school. But um but yeah. but I, I actually, I can totally see that being true. Yeah. And then one other thing that's kind of a tech theme we can pull out of this is when we originally started doing the show, it was for uh, David and I to understand why successful acquisitions went well, what were the characteristics. And as we started companies in the future that would, um, you know, if not IPO, hopefully sell to larger companies, how to make those more successful within the company. And uh, one theme that we immediately identified that Facebook does very well is this keep the, se- the team separate mantra where um, you-, you let teams exist on their own for a long time. And this is a big part of change management, just just sort of like message what's changing, message what's not, and allow the, the, the good things to, to continue for as long as possible from the smaller organization. A second big one that we're now seeing that um, I think we, we saw first in the uh, Accomp Lee episode where uh, Javier Soltero um, took the lead for all of Outlook at Microsoft yep. is when you acquire the company, promote their leader to be the leader of the organization that they're coming into and, and allow all the goodness from the company that you acquired to actually um, you know, grow in that, that much uh, larger tree of the organization chart rather than existing just down in there, their little thing. Yep. Well, and I think it really, it really depends on what the acquiring organization's sort of goals and needs and realities are. Facebook can take the luxury with a lot of their acquisitions of letting them, you know, flourish and operate on their own because the core Facebook business at this point, you know, we talked about on the IPO uh, episode at one point it was quite challenged, but, um, you know, at this point it's doing so well versus a Walmart where, you know, they're just battening down the hatches versus, versus Amazon. And, you know, in particular, I got to think if I'm at Walmart right now and I see Amazon go Amazon prime air and drone deliveries, like I've got to be just terrified of what (laughs) that's going to do to my business. You know, they don't have that luxury. Right. 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 Third, uh, uh, and last follow up we wanted to do is the News to be expected. Drama is mounting around the Snap Inc. IPO that is hotly expected in a few months. There was an article, a series of articles, um, uh, I I believe right at the end of 2016, about potential fraud at the company and overstating their growth numbers. Um, And then news just came out this week that, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, Evan Spiegel and Bobby Murphy Murphy are going to have super voting shares and control the, the vast majority of the the voting shares of the company. This is going to be uh, this is going to make for an excellent acquired episode when the IPO finally does happen later this year. We can't wait to get all these issues uh, at least resolved in the context of the IPO and dig in. Yep, I can't wait either. All right, with that, should we wrap up with carve outs? Yeah. 
So mine, uh, I was going to recommend a whole blog, but I want to save more posts on this blog for future carve-outs because there's so many good ones. Um, there's a guy named Michael Lopp, who was a longtime engineering manager at Apple uh, and then Pinterest, and now I believe he runs engineering at Slack, and he writes under the pseudonym RANS, and uh, he writes at RANSINREPOSE.COM. And there's a great, uh, a great piece that he wrote uh, late last year called The Situation. And it's about that situation where something bad happened at your company. Um, you need to have a meeting about it. Everybody's sitting there in the meeting and kind of the, the all looking at each other like, uh-oh, what's the right protocol for this? Like, who's on the line? What do we need to do? What are the steps? And it's, it's all about um, the way that you feel in that moment in a really beautiful writing style and a, a pretty good actual means of dealing with escalation like this and, and understanding, you know, what are the, the logical steps that need to be taken um, in, in varying types of situations. So just love his writing style. Obviously, the content is super applicable for, for anyone in a, a tech or engineering organization and highly recommend it. Yeah, probably even beyond tech and engineering organizations, <laughs> right. the number of uh, quote unquote situations uh, I come across on a uh, monthly, if not weekly biz, uh, basis. Um, I need to read that post. <laughs> it's great. He wrote, it's, it's part of a, a lot of his posts are, are uh, basically the pre-writing for a book called managing humans that he, uh, cool. uh, he's got. So I think I haven't read the book yet. It'll probably be my carve out when I actually do read it, but, um, highly recommend it. <laughs> it reminds me of, um, uh, total aside, but, uh, when I, when I first, when I came back from business school, uh, to Madrona and first started, uh, working on, on, on boards as a venture capitalist, I asked uh, Sujal Patel, who was the founder and CEO of Isilon, was a very successful storage company and former Madrona portfolio company in Seattle, um, you know, sort of what advice he had as a successful CEO and having worked with lots of VCs, you know, Madrona and Sequoia and many others on his board. And, you know, what advice would he give me? He said, you know, the biggest thing, just don't freak out. <laughs> and, mm. uh, um, I've tried to take that to heart. You know, it's like things are going to happen in any journey. And uh, if you freak out as a board member, then you make me as a CEO freak out. And then that makes everyone else at the company freak out. And then that leads to bad decisions. You know, oh, I love that. <laughs> Keep a steady hand. Cool, cool. My carve out uh, is a, a fun one. Jenny and I were staying at an Airbnb for a wedding uh, this weekend in New York. And, um, uh, there was uh, they, they had this the host had this this book on a bookshelf there called Daily Rituals and I thought that sounds interesting I'll pick it up and see what's in it and um, it's this uh, it's this cool book it's a, a collection of sort of one to two pages each on really famous artists and thinkers from the last couple hundred years and um, just what their daily routine was like like what did they do um, uh, how did they get their work done? You know, how, what did, how did they spend their time? And, um, super interesting in the wide variety of, you know, some people like Benjamin Franklin and others like very, very disciplined, you know, very, um, you know, very, uh, uh, regimented in their lives and, you know, devoted hours to work and really good health habits and those things. And then others are like, you know, Voltaire, <laughs> Voltaire, like spent most of his time just lounging in bed and he would write in bed and, um, dictate and like, you know, drink cope massive amounts of alcohol. And then other, you know, people would do all sorts of drugs. And like, it was you know, the doubly interesting thing about it is, you know, each, 
the title of each person had their birth year, and then if they were deceased, their death year. There seemed to be no correlation between uh, longevity and <laughs> and uh, degree of hard living. You know, huh. people who were the most disciplined like would die in their fifties, and people who um, led the craziest lives would live into their nineties. Like, uh, just interesting. I'm not sure that that justifies living a, a crazy <laughs> life, but uh, yeah, David, what are you recommending here? Book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com acquired or click the link in the show notes. That's it for today, guys. If uh, if you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. And if you feel so inclined, we'd love a review on iTunes or uh, any any sharing you could do with your friends, family, coworkers, uh, social media, whatever you feel is uh, is appropriate. Yeah, and uh, just a quick uh, quick preview. We've got some we've got some great episodes in the works uh, with some really special guests. So. We're looking forward to the next few months here at Acquired. Uh, we also have some new stuff coming on the show, and um, we can't wait to share it with all you guys. So True that. I know that's a teaser, but uh, <laughs> but stay tuned. We've got exciting stuff coming soon. Well, how about this? Join the Slack, and we'll, uh, we'll tease a little more. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Talk to you guys soon. Later. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who 